Welcome to the Why We Argue podcast, the Future of Truth edition. This season of the podcast is produced by the Future of Truth, a project based at the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute. It explores what truth is, where it's going, and why it matters in democracy. The project is made possible by generous funding from the University of Connecticut and the Henry Luce Foundation. The podcast features discussions with publicly-minded thinkers about the cultural and political role of concepts like truth, fact, and information. Today, my guest is Kevin Vallier. Kevin is Associate Professor in the Department of Philosophy at Bowling Green State University. Kevin specializes in political philosophy. His research has to do with the political problems that emerge from moral diversity. His most recent book is titled Trust in a Polarized Age. You can follow him on Twitter at KVallier. That's one word, K-V-A-L-L-I-E-R. Now, I invited Kevin on the program today to talk about social trust. What is it? Why is it in decline? And can we do anything about it? Hi, Kevin. Hi, Bob. How are you today? Oh, pretty, pretty good. Um, just uh, looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, well, great. Me too. Um, so let's just dive in and begin with the big picture. Um, so uh, a free and open society, a, a liberal society in a certain sense, um, is home to moral diversity. Uh, I take it that that's, um, that should be obvious. Um, part of a citizen's freedom, we might even say, uh, consists uh, in their being able to decide uh, for themselves what's of value and what's really important and what they should devote their lives to and so on. Now, I take it that that's um, a central virtue of a free and open society, um, but it also gives rise uh, to problems. Now, you've been thinking a lot recently uh, about one of those problems or maybe about um, one way of understanding many of them. Um, uh, and you've been working uh, on the concept of trust or social trust. Um, can you tell us a little bit about social trust? Sure. Um, so um, just, just a way to kind of think about the, the project. Um, here I'm following you know, a line of, of thought from John Rawls and uh, Jerry Gauss. Uh, about the sources of disagreement in any open, diverse society. And the very rough thought is that a lot of our disagreement about very deep issues is the result of sincere and reflective and honest engagement. And the thought here is that, you know, the reason that other people disagree with me is not because they're stupid or evil or some combination of those things. Um, and so the worry is that free reasoning just leads in lots of different directions. Now, there's lots of advantages to this in one way. So, for instance, you know, we're learning more about the way in which diversity, diverse teams help to produce better outcomes. But it creates a difficulty because it does make it harder for us to trust people we don't know. So most of the trust we are familiar with, the concept of trust is trust between friends or trust between spouses or trust between parents and children. That's what people call particularized trust or scholars call social scientists call particularized trust. Um, social trust is something different. Very roughly, it is the faith that we have that strangers will follow established norms. And I can pack, unpack that in a lot of ways, but just with some examples, um, suppose you were to leave your wallet in Starbucks. Um, 
and you have certain expectations about how likely it is that someone will return the wallet to you. And it may not be anyone you know, right? And you don't have any particular expectation that any particular person will bring it back to you, but a kind of generic expectation that most people in my society can be trusted to do the right thing most of the time. And so if I left the wallet, it would probably be returned to me. Um, so, you know, social trust, on my view, is a, a judgment that we make that others can be depended upon to follow the kind of most basic social norms of our society. So, you know, I often give the example of the kind of rules of the road when we're driving. A lot of these are what um, decision theorists call conventions. They're rules that we follow just out of our self-interest, like driving on the right-hand side of the road, right? I mean, we don't drive on the left because we'll just get hit. Um, and there are some things that are laws, right? And we might follow them because we're afraid of getting caught. But there's a lot of rules that are just matters of courtesy, right? Like, you know, th the police aren't always there at a four-way stop. They aren't always there to monitor me letting people merge into oncoming traffic. There are certain kinds of social norms where we all think that, you know, eventually someone will let us in or someone will let us through. But we all also think that we're under some kind of moral expectation, right? We all think that others think that we ought to do it. And when we don't, but when we violate those norms, we fear social punishment, right? Shaming or someone raising their fist at us or honking their horn or something along those lines. And social trust isn't trust that people will follow conventions. You don't need to trust people to do that. It's trust that people will follow social norms where they have to engage in some kind of public moral conduct, even though they're tempted not to do so. Now, so that's how I think about what social trust is in a little more detail. It depends on the theory of social norms. Um, now, why is it important and why does diversity challenge it? Well, a lot of the bases for trust that we have with people that we know is that we have common values and beliefs. And so we can depend on people because we know that they share our beliefs and values, right? We don't have to know everything they're going to do because we can predict what they're going to do because they care about the same things that we care about. But with strangers in large and open and complex orders where we know they have different values, we don't always know by consulting their values what they're going to do. We don't know their values, right? Or we know they could be very different than our values. And so what then can the basis of social trust be? And my thought in, you know, trust in a polarized age, but in the also the predecessor book, which is more philosophical, must politics be war, um, that if the norms of our society can be justified to multiple perspectives, or philosophers say it's publicly justified, then we'll each have some motivation from our own perspective to go along with the relevant norms. And so that means that there'll be a moral motivation for each of us to be trustworthy from our own perspective. That is, we'll, we'll be able to see our own reason to follow the norm. Other people can see that about themselves. We can see that about each other. Then we can start to depend on one another to follow those norms, even though we know our values are different. We know the rules can be justified to multiple perspectives, and so we can trust people to follow the norms that we know have different perspectives. So the difficulty is that in a diverse society, there's this inclination to distrust because we have fewer bases for trust, um, but that what we need is a system of open rules that we all have reason of our own to follow. Um, and that can become a new basis for trustworthiness in a large, you know, in a large and diverse open society. And then the question becomes, well, which rules can be justified to multiple <laughs> perspectives? And then that's a whole big project. Um, but one of the thoughts I had in formulating the project was, was this. Um, 
oftentimes people in this, what we call social contract or public reason tradition, they'll make certain kind of claims about what kinds of relationships or um, social goods are established by this kind of interpersonal justification. They'll say it produces stability of the right reasons or something like that. Um, and these are nice claims, um, but what would be cool is if we could actually study that to determine whether it's true. And so I thought, look, I'm going to try to bring the social scientific study of social trust to the social contract tradition, because I want to be able to see if the same institutions that can be justified to multiple perspectives and so form the rational basis for trust actually had anything to do with producing trust in the real world. So where Trust in a Polarized Age, the book, came from was the thought that I would sort of show both, well, what liberal institutions can be justified to multiple perspectives, but also, look, they also have a tendency to produce different kinds of trust. They can, in some cases, produce social trust, and in other cases, they can produce trust in government or trust in certain institutions. Sometimes they can do both. Um, so the reason that, you know, we care that liberal institutions can promote social trust is because social scientists have indeed found that social trust has all kinds of really important benefits. Um, it enables, for instance, economic equality because people tend to have a higher preference for redistribution when they feel like the people who receive it um, won't misuse it. It creates more economic growth in ways that we're just figuring out now by enabling exchange. But it also enables people to form the complex institutions like schools and universities that can improve people's productivity. Um, it can create more trust in government um, because the people who staff the government are, you know, not entirely, I mean, help, you know, partially represent the public or partially representative of the public. Um, it can even produce things like, you know, lower psychological stress and crime and uh, things and lower corruption. Right. So there's almost no downside to having lots of social trust unless, in fact, people are actually really untrustworthy, but it tends not to be the case. Um, and we, the, the puzzle with social trust is that, you know, there are people who think that we can change it institutionally, but I think most of the evidence suggests that we don't really know what the source or origin of social trust is. There are some things I think that can move it in the margin, at the margin, but there are also some institutions, I think, with liberal societies that can promote trust um, in government, which is also important. It's not as important, but it's almost as important as social trust. Um, but we want more social trust um, as long as we're getting it in the ways that we ordinarily think are are just. Um, now, once I kind of thought, well, let's bring all the empirical measures to bear on the political philosophy, I discovered something very, very strange about the United States, which is that our social trust has been in decline for decades. And this is not true in other liberal established liberal democracies. So there are some countries that social trust has declined in a lot. Um, these are primarily countries that are new democracies, like Romania um, or um, Poland, where you move from authoritarianism to democracy and social trust seems to collapse. We don't really know why. It might be because people are finally being honest with pollsters. It might be because there's open media, and so people can see how many problems there were. It might be because people are participating in democracy in the first time, and so there's more people to blame for bad policy outcomes. We don't really know. Um, but among established democracies, established democracies, we're the only country with a sustained, statistically significant loss of social trust over time. It's a very, very important puzzle. And so then the question is, well, what's causing it? Can we stop it? 
Um, can I can I break in there just for a second? Yeah. I, I wanted to ask um, if you could say a little bit more about the um, the both the empirical and the conceptual relations between social trust and that which is I, I take it at least paradigmatically trust among people. Yeah. Um, and, uh, these other, you know, this sort of institutional or, or trust yeah. in the government, um, which is, you know, trust not among people. It might be a trust among people with, where one of them is understood as a person, um, in an elected or an official role. <laughs> um, yeah. but, um, could you say something a little bit about how, um, those are connected? Because it seems to me that part of, um, again, intuitively, it seems to me that part of the, um, uh, part of the um, diagnostic uh, story of the United States is, at least uh, over the past couple of years, um, is that these two are, are pretty closely related, that it's because I can't trust the other people that I also have distrust of office holders and the institutional frameworks, uh, you know, that, that constitute their offices. Yeah. Does that seem right? Yeah. I mean, um, there are some countries with lowish political trust, but high social trust. Um, but you usually don't have the reverse where there's high political trust, but low social trust. So social trust, it looks like, is an important precondition for political trust. Um, you may think the people in office are worse than most people. It is kind of unusual to think that they're better. Um, um, but yeah, let me talk about political trust a bit because there's a, a number of different uh, varieties, but there's really one sure. concept. Um, when we trust people socially, we're not really trusting them to do any specific thing. They're not, we're not trusting them to complete a particular objective. We're trusting them to be generally reliable and following certain rules that enable us to get along and to achieve our own personal goals. But political trust, trust is more targeted because what we're doing is we're trusting people to meet certain objectives that are part of the charge of their office or their institution. So, you know, you can trust the president or not, depending on what you think the president is supposed to be doing. So if you think the president, typically, everybody thinks for some reason that the Republican president's responsible for the direction of the economy um, and economic outcomes. Um, and so, you know, the president can be more trusted if he's doing his job well or otherwise not. But also there's moral issues like is the president honest or not? Um, but a lot of it, trust in institutions is based on whether you think people are achieving their objectives or the purpose of their office or the purpose of their, their agency. Um, but there's an additional element I've found is that it's when you distrust someone and you think that they're at fault for a failure to achieve the objective, so because of corruption. So, you know, suppose you learn, you know, there's a pandemic. We don't know a lot about the virus. And so some institutions fail, but it wasn't their fault because everybody got sick, right? Um, then I think, you know, your trust in that institution isn't going to decline because there was not, no, uh, there was no sort of moral failure behind that. So the thought is that when we trust an institution, we're trusting them to reach certain outcomes and that their leaders at the very least um, um, are doing the thing. They're doing their job because they have some kind of integrity or something along those lines. Um, so, you know, you can talk about political trust, like trust in the EPA to protect the environment or, you know, trust in the IRS to collect taxes or, you know, trust in the president or trust in Congress, you know, trust in the military. So that's typically what's going on is, is we're depending on people to achieve a certain objective and to do so, you know, in a way that seems appropriate. 
I see. Um, and uh, yeah. so how does that, um, you know, I take it that one of the, um, one of the ways in which the, the, the Trump movement, the member, the, the people who endorse uh, uh, yeah. the former president to this day, um, spell things out though, is a kind of, um, you know, the, 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 the people on the other side politically uh, are not worth trusting both in the political sense so the office holders, the party leaders are not worth trusting, but also, you know, your neighbors or the people uh, who live in, you know, on the coast who vote the wrong way, or they're not worth trusting. But I take it that there's also the claim that there's some um, massive uh, kind of um, disingenuity about uh, fundamental institutions yes. such that they would um, – you know, they, they could easily be gamed so that an entire election could be rigged at the national level. Yeah. Um, is that, is, is that, I mean, institutions now and in that sort of more like, you know, rubber meets the road sense, is that tied into this story too, that somehow yeah, yeah, the yeah, institutions yeah. that would block this kind of massive fraud are powerless against what turns out to be, you know, a group of politicians who in almost every other context are believed to be incompetent. Yeah. So um, there is some evidence that we're getting that lower trust in government leads to more populist voting. I see. So I, I mean, here's a rough story that I can't prove, but I think there is some evidence for, which is that the tale of the early 2000, of the 2000s is massive elite failure in the West. So elite in the in the U.S. in particular, elite failure with respect to the Iraq war and elite failure with respect to the financial crisis. Um, Americans are never particularly huge fans of their elite, but you, you get a gradually mistrusted elite. And then, you know, you get the Tea Party movement and the Republicans taking back Congress. And this was in some ways a kind of new and importantly new group because you had some people that you know, kind of thought that what government was doing was sort of corrupt from top to bottom. I mean, you had this with Reagan, you had this with Gingrich, but not not to the same degree that they would just bring everything. I mean, well, I guess Gingrich did at one point, bring everything to a, a screeching halt, even when it was incredibly destructive, you know, not getting a grand bargain, for instance, in 2011 and so on. Um, and a lot of it's because trust in government was, I think, low, and that just continued to fester. And um, until Trump, you know, said he was going to come in and train the swamp. But the irony here, and we're seeing this with Bolsonaro and, and Brazil, is that you get a populist candidate in, but they're incompetent. And then you really can't trust the government. And then, you know, what do you do? Right. Now, we were lucky enough to elect a career politician who actually knows how to make things function. Um, and we kind of we kind of caught a break there. Um um, but there's this kind of populist incompetent cycle that's, I think, very, very dangerous. So, for instance, I think we're going to see with the World Value Survey, um, a survey they do all over the world every couple of years. 2011, about 14 percent of people said you can't trust the government at all. And in 2017, double said that 28 percent said you can't trust the government at all in the U.S. And that very likely has a single <laughs> result. Um, explanation of one chief explanation with Trump. Um, but the worry is that things malfunction so badly under him um, that, um, you know, we may be stuck with people distrusting the government and then voting on that basis. Now, my hope is that, you know, that pattern of 
low trust in government, more populist voting, poor performance, low trust in government, continued populist voting. My hope is that people's desperation for competent government is going to put pressure on a lot of these populist movements because so much of it is politics is performance art. And I think a lot of people are thinking, well, you know, performance art is fine and fun, but I don't want to get COVID. Um, and I don't, you know, obvious, but a lot of Republicans, a surprising number approve of Biden's handling of the virus. Um, and so I think that may be breaking through. But the general thing you have to worry about is low trust, political trust, be getting more low political trust through this kind of populist cycle. And that's, I think, where we were until uh, really until Biden really got things going with vaccine production. And I think we may be OK for now, um, but I'm trying to be optimistic. <laughs> so good. And uh, I appreciate that. Um the optimism, I mean. Um, yeah. You know, can we so let's get back then to social trust? Um, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit on your account of you know, you know, tell us a little bit more about how it erodes, or maybe um, more particularly how it has eroded uh, yeah. in the U.S. and in, in, uh, specifically. Yeah. So, I mean, I my, one of my next big projects is um, working with Christina Bicchieri to develop a theory of social norm and social trust learning hmm. because we don't really have social scientists don't really have a good theory of social trust learning. Um, and my view is that people learn in impressionable years. So when they're younger by um, learning the extent about the norms in their society and the extent to which people follow them. So I call this the norm compliance theory of trust learning, and we're going to start formulating it more precisely and, and, and studying it. But I think there's evidence if you go back in time, <clears throat> many of the most trusting societies are societies that have a very, very cold month. Hmm. Um, and it suggests that like culturally, if you don't develop the ability to trust large groups, you don't survive. And so the thought is that, well, this maybe helps to explain why trust is so sky high in the Scandinavian countries, abnormally, crazily high, actually, um, because, you know, you, you can't just stick to your small tribe and make it um, in, those, in those climates. Um, and so the thought here is that when you have moments of deep cooperation, even at modest levels, like a few thousand people, that that can be really trust building. Um, and so my guess, although we don't have data on this, is that World War II created a great reservoir of social trust in the United States, in particular because, you know, we didn't have to, well, we didn't bother, I guess, with any kind of like deep reckoning about our conduct during the war in the way that Germany did. Like, I think World War II was very destructive of trust for Germany in lots of ways. Um, so what I think happened is that you had after the Second World War, this big reservoir of trust. We start measuring it in the early 60s. And it's, you know, it's pretty high. It's in the 50s. About half of people say most can be trusted. Since then, we've, we've tumbled mostly in the 60s and 70s to about 31% in 2018. So we're getting down below a third of people saying most can be trusted. So that's the pattern in the U.S. Now, the question is, what's going on? Um, there's a couple of things that are offered that I think aren't very plausible. Um, but I'll start with the most plausible candidate, which is rising economic inequality. Um, 
So there is a pretty tight correlation between the general measure of economic inequality, the Gini coefficient, and the decline in social trust. It's actually a really good correlation. Um, surprisingly good for macro level variables like this. Um, and the thought is, okay, you know, people are, you know, more different from you. They seem more different. It's harder to trust them because they have way more money. Or maybe you think the system is ripping you off and you trust people less. Um, but it looks like from the best data that we have that the causal arrow seems to go in the other direction. The highly trusting societies say, yeah, let's redistribute wealth because we want to help good people, right? Um, in the U.S., you talk about redistribution, people start to say, oh, they're going to spend food stamps on lobster or whatever. Um, um, and so what, what happens is that um, uh, you, so, you know, lower trust societies have weaker welfare states, higher trust societies have uh, larger welfare states, and because of that. Um, but um, an another difficulty is that ethnic diversity doesn't reduce social trust as much as you would think. It's primarily has to do with the geography of it. So, you know, if people are locally segregated, that can reduce social trust a lot. But imagine this. Imagine we just added Puerto Rico to the United States. That would increase ethnic diversity, but it wouldn't affect trust because the diversity is isolated, right? So, um, you know, and the same thing with economic diversity. I think, you know, if you don't encounter the rich people or see them very much, I don't think it's going to cue that base level distrust of the same way. Um, and so I think there's a variety of issues trying to explain declining trust in those terms. Also the case that U UK's got a lot more unequal economically, but their social trust levels are very stable. Um, so it just doesn't seem to work. Um, immigration doesn't seem to work. A lot of it depends. Again, it's ethnic diversity stuff. Dep there's been a lot of work on this now. There is a somewhat negative correlation with social trust, but it depends a lot on how it's distributed in the context. It's local residential segregation that seems to reduce social trust, but very far flung increases in ethnic diversity, not really a problem. So again, you're not going to hurt social trust if Puerto Rico becomes the 51st state, right? Um, and you do have a lot of places where there are a lot of immigrants, um, but, um, but it, it's, it doesn't seem to affect social trust more broadly. Now, a lot of immigration really quick can lower trust in government. Um, sure. But that's a, that's pretty different. So I don't think uh, immigration has uh, a lot to do with it. There's other things like slowing economic growth, but a lot of the trust failures were in our fastest growth periods. Um, um, some of it, I think, is cultural. So just the, for instance, the difference over the Vietnam War, I think, was very destructive because it sowed trust distrust between generations. Um, because they develop and they developed the younger people develop very, very different norms of behavior, particularly surrounding sex and beliefs about sex. And so this created a sense that, oh, the younger people aren't following the right norms. And the younger people say the older people aren't following the right norms. Um, you know, don't trust anyone ever 30. You know, you've heard that. <laughs> before, right? yeah. um, and so there was a lot of intergenerational distrust. And and I think that pattern continues with millennials distrusting baby boomers. Um, and so you, you've seen a lot of decline, but, um, in social trust and the millennials are uh, not very trusting at all. Uh, the inverse of the silent generation, you know, two thirds say most can't be trusted. The silent generation, one third say most can't be trusted. Um, so, um, what I think is going, 
on, at least I think part of the story is the increase in polarization because it's creating a new in-group, out-group phenomenon with different culture and different values and making differences extremely salient and making new things norms that you can't comply with in a democracy, like don't vote for the under candidate, right? And so, oh, you voted for Trump. That means I can't trust you. Um, And so what we're essentially getting is new norms and then people violating those norms um, and then that leading people to trust each other less. Um, But polarization starting to drive the formula, the formation of those new norms. And so it's enabling the decline in social trust. But there's also the reverse, which is that as social trust declines, people tend to retreat more into their in-groups so they don't have to at least feel like they're relying as much on others. And I think there's some evidence to suggest that there's plausible causal errors running in either direction, from lower trust to more polarization and vice versa. Now, I go into a lot of detail about causes and stuff in the introduction to trust in a polarized age, but the idea is that they're in a kind of doom loop. Now, right now, I've seen, you know, I've got someone I'm working with empirically to put the time series together on the polarization measure, Nolan McCarty's uh, nominated index, and then the um, social trust measures from the American National Election Survey, um, from um, uh, the General Social Survey. And then we're going to try to to run all the numbers as clearly as we can. There seems to be a rough matchup, but we've, we've, we've got to do the statistical work to actually test whether we're in the doom. But that's one of the next things I'm, I'm working on. So, But that's what I think is going on is that the, the dynamics of going from the country's a group to red group, blue group, um, plausibly is uh, hitting social trust um, with subsequent generations. Right. So um, let me ask, with the time we have left, um, do we know anything about how social trust can be restored? Yeah, I mean, that's the tough nut to crack, <laughs> is that you know a lot of the people who buy the inequality stuff, they say, well, redistribute wealth and you'll get more social trust back. Well, we, we don't really know that you can get more trust from more redistribution just because there's a, you know, so, and I think, I think, I actually think it could help in a weird way because I think one thing that, I, one thing I think that is, uh, does change people's social trust attitudes as adults, doesn't change very much once you reach adulthood, um, is what's called unemployment scarring. So I'm developing a concept now that I call social betrayal, where people feel like their societies betrayed them in some way, and then they trust most people less based on what they regard as a collective failure, like to employ them, provide them with basic work. Um, so if redistribution produced more economic security, then I think it could help social trust. Um, but the data on unemployment scarring and trust, it's like coming out like a couple of months ago. <laughs> so we're right, just getting right. a look at it. Um, but what you need, it seems to me, um, is institutions where you can have positive contact with people, um, particularly, I think, when younger people are involved in associations. It is a complicated relationship between social trust and freedom of association. There's a correlation, but most people think it's people who trust a lot join a lot. Um, but I think that when younger people are raised – within these organizations, if they interact with people that are different from them, like you're in a soup kitchen or something like that, um, that can be trust building. If if you're in a a well-regulated market with well-defined protected legal property rights, so you have to worry about being defrauded and stuff like that, that can be uh, trust building. When you interact with regular government institutions that are governed by the rule of law, um, where you, you you, you can go to the Social Security office and you don't have to worry about 
uh, you know, not being paid attention to or not being helped. So regular non-corrupt government officials and things like election integrity, feeling like you really do have an input into the democratic process. It's a, it's a real power. So what unites kind of all the different institutions I look at in the book, the way they promote social trust is by promoting positive contact experiences between diverse persons. So that's essentially what I think is, you know, uh, pretty, pretty important. And, you know, in following on, on, on your work, I think, yeah, if it's in a non-political context, you know, like there's, you know, then that's going to be uh, really important, which is why I think market contexts, freedom of association contexts, contact with government agencies where there's not seem to be politics at stake, like being able to get unemployment benefits. Right. Um, it's those kind of positive contact experiences that I think can can help. Well, Kevin, that was uh, um, gave us a lot to think about. Um, thanks so much uh, for appearing on Why We Argue. Well, thanks so much for having me. And folks, you've been listening to the Why We Argue podcast, the Future of Truth edition. Thanks, as always, to our podcast team. Toby Napolitano of the University of California at Merced handles our sound. Elizabeth Della Cesara of the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute is our communications coordinator. Andrew Johnson handles research for us at the University of Connecticut. The podcast is produced by the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute's Future of Truth Project with generous funding from the University of Connecticut and the Henry Luce Foundation. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and bye for now. Thank you.